think about the profound influence of the Bible on the world, the way that it has shaped our culture, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, it's probably a good idea that you know at least what it says. It's going to be about us taking and reading the Bible. Welcome back to the Take and Read podcast. Pastor Chad here. And today, today's going to be a little different. Okay. A series of events and circumstances in the universe have allowed me to try something that I've wanted to try. And that is a solo episode, an episode where I am on my own. I do not have a guest here. And so it's going to look a little different. It might be a little bit shorter just because there's not as much banter, but. Excited to have you join me nonetheless. Uh, we're going to continue our trek through the Gospel of Mark. And so glad that you're joining me. And I hope, I hope you hang in there till the end of this episode. Uh, and I would love your feedback. I'd love your feedback on how this goes. I, yeah, I, I've wondered how it would go uh, where it's just me and my own thoughts and my own voice. But you might get tired of my voice, and that's okay too. And you can tune it out. But. We're going to take a look, and we're going to take, and we're going to read the Word of God. But like I normally do with my guests, I usually ask them, what has God been teaching you? And I rarely answer that question, and so I thought today I would just kind of walk through at this season of my life. Uh, Here I am, uh, a father of three kids, uh, happily married for uh, going on 16 years, and i the Lord has moved us from our home in Texas and everything that was familiar and comfortable there, and he's moved us to Montana in the place where I was born and raised and grew up. And obviously there are differences. There are differences in the climate and kind of the speed of life. There were a lot more people in the area that we lived in Texas that compared to where we are in Montana. But there are also some similarities. There's there's a, a similar kind of mood about the people in Texas and Montana, kind of a uh, an, a pride of state kind of thing. But as I reflect on what the Lord has done, how faithful he's been, uh, there's some things that I can clearly see the hand of God. We, As we wrestled with this transition, my wife and I, and prayed through this transition and fasted in leading up to this transition and even invited uh, our kids into that fat time of fasting as to what the Lord might be doing and leading us into this opportunity. It was confirmed on multiple sides by multiple people. The Lord was faithful to show us and confirm that we were coming here. And so we've we've arrived and we have not regretted it one day. It is just we've seen the hand of God confirming over and over again. And, and he's he doesn't always have to do that. Uh, I think it it's a little presumptuous to think that the Lord has to confirm or show you things. And in this season of life, he's been so gracious and so good that he has. Uh, our kids are are thriving. They, they have great friendships. They're enjoying uh, the people that they're doing life with. We, we love our church family, and we're just happy to be engaged with the folks uh, at our church family here. And it's just uh, we feel like we match the hatch. It's a fly fishing term. That you know, you you kind of look around and you identify what's hatching in the, the the bug world, and that's what you put on the end of your fly line in order to catch the fish. and And there's a sense in which we match the hatch here. We we uh, these are our people, and we're excited and glad to be here with them. 
And the way that I've seen the Lord work uh, most recently is there have been many points in the time that I've been here where I have had the opportunity to seek the Lord with others over a particular thing. And that is myself and other believers in our church family or in our own family have been seeking after the Lord and and asking for his guidance and his direction. And he has been faithful to move in and through circumstances in people that, uh, you know, you're, you're hoping if a decision's made or a direction that we're going is, is happening, that you hope that everyone is on the same page. And it's been amazing to see several times in the last couple of months that the Spirit of God is at work and He's moving. And it's just made me realize and be reminded that as I pray for His will to be done and for His guidance and His leadership, I can trust that the Spirit of God that dwells in me is the same Spirit of God that dwells in other believers and that He is at work in their hearts too and in work in their lives and helping them to to come to realizations or to have certain preferences. And, and there's just this amazing opportunity to watch God steer the ship as his people humble themselves and seek his face. He moves in the subtle, simple ways and responds to our prayers. So that's something that has been on display for me. The Lord has been showing me and wanting me to see that he he moves, and he moves when his people pray and seek his face. And so I've just been encouraged in my prayer life to continue to seek him and to humble myself before him. All right, with that said, uh, we've now been caught up. I hope you're doing well. I would love that if there was a way to dialogue, and maybe someday we'll do this live. Maybe that's the next step to this, and I can respond to comments as they're happening in a live feed. If that's something you would want to see happen, please leave comments. Tell me. We'll figure out how to go live at some point, and so I can interact with people as we're reading the text together, and you guys are seeing things and noticing things, and I get to respond to that. That would be actually really neat. So uh, leave that in the comments if that's something that would be interesting to you. Right now we're going to take and we're going to read the Word of God. I am reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. I do have most of my Bibles unpacked, but I'm just really digging on the ESV right now. So I'm going to continue to dig on it, and we're going to read out of Mark chapter 12. All righty. So Mark chapter 12. Again, we we ask the Lord, Lord, please give us wisdom, give us insight by your Spirit, illuminate the text, help us to see and to understand what you have for us today as we read your Word. Amen. All right, so we are in Mark chapter 12, and, and to remind us where we, we land in this, if you've tuned in last week, we just look, took a look at uh, the, the authority of Jesus being challenged as they were questioning him. And they were asking him by what authority he's he's doing these things. And he puts to them another question. Well, let me let me ask you this. And he talks about John's baptism. Uh, was it from heaven or from man? And they didn't know. They were very concerned. There were all these kind of, well, if we say this, then, you know, people might conclude this. And so there, there was this fear of man that they had. And it was a demonstration of their lack of authority. And it highlighted yet again his authority, which was 
being challenged in that very moment. So we again, we see Christ Jesus, who is absolutely in command of the situation. And again, through Mark, we've just seen this continual display of authority. Over and over again, he's demonstrated his authority through his teaching. He's demonstrated it through uh, calming the storm and driving out demons and healing disease. He's, he's demonstrating authority in every realm. And so he, as he's now entered Jerusalem, there are multiple days where he engages with the leadership in Jerusalem. And so here's this engagement where they challenged him. And that's where we pick up in chapter 12 which uh, we will be reading chapter 12 of Mark 1 through 12. Here we go. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him away, or sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to the others, or to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. All righty. Well, as is our practice here, the first thing I'm doing, and, and so what what I want to proceed with, since I don't have a dialogue partner here, I'm just going to kind of talk out loud my own process as I'm attending to this passage. Like, what are the things that stick out? What am I wondering about? And how do I process through this passage? And uh, yeah, uh, again, this is a new format. We'll see. It may be a total bomb, and and I'll learn from it, and we'll keep going. But the first thing I'm wondering, okay, he says, and he began to speak to them in parables. I'm first of all, I'm wondering, okay, he I know is Jesus speaking to them. Where did it just? Where did he just come from? And and not it's not always the case in Mark that it's like this. Um, neat timeline of events, and sometimes there's gaps of time, and we just don't know how much time has passed, but it's it seems that he's just got done talking with uh, the leadership, right? It says that the elders, the scribes, those that were in authority came to him, and they were testing him, asking him about authority, and so he kind of goes off and, and says, well, you know, the John the Baptist thing, and then uh He's like, I'm not going to tell you. If you can't tell me where John's baptism came from, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. And then immediately says, and he began to teach, speak to them in parables. So right away, I'm wondering, okay, is this addressed to them or is this addressed to the disciples or whoever else? I 
I'm concluding that it's addressed to those still gathered there that had just challenged him. And I another thing that feeds into that is be, what I think the meaning of the parable is, like why he said this parable, uh, helps us to understand to whom he's saying it. And then also it says that at the end of what we just read, uh, he they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him in one way. And so the response of those that had just heard it would have been those same people that just challenged him. And so that this this must have been a similar exchange or at, at around the same time. And so right away we understand who's, who's speaking Jesus, the one who has authority, and he is speaking to this gathered group of elders and scribes and priests and other Jewish leaders, those that have this uh, perceived authority um, and so he's he's going to continue to challenge them. And he uses a parable. And it, it, one of the things that I think we always have to be reminded of with parables, that the reason why Jesus uses the parables, it seems to be a method by which he can say something to a group of people that is mixed, right? Some that have understanding and some that don't. He'll say, it for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, that kind of thing, so that there are some that do have eyes to see and do have ears to hear, but then there's others that don't. And so we have here, he is speaking in a parable, and oftentimes there's kind of this this message that is being cloaked that some cannot understand, but others can. And what's interesting about this parable, so far it's been one of those where the people don't quite understand, especially those that he is trying to confront or he is, uh, through the parable, condemning or, or speaking about. They don't always get it that it's about them. In this case, they do. They perceive. And I think that that's interesting and that's telling. Uh, there might be some things, I think, in the, in the parable itself that maybe kind of triggered some understanding. And so he goes in and he tells this parable. And the, the parable is, is simply that there's a man who uh, plants a vineyard, puts a fence around it, he develops this so that there's uh, a vineyard there, there's, there's got to be crops, there's ways, a tower to like look over the vineyard, there's a press there to process the grapes once they become ripe and produce wine, and so he's, he's got this plot of land that, you know, in this parable, this landowner has developed, and he leaves it to these tenants. They're going to be the people that tend to it, that take care of it, that work it, uh, regularly so he doesn't have to. And you would imagine that they would then get some of the proceeds. And so when he sends someone back, uh, he sent someone back to go get some of the fruit, not all of it. So he's just simply sending somebody to go get his, his portion because he owns it. And over time, uh, these tenants decide, look, we, if we take out his, his messengers, then you know, we, it's ours. We get to keep the vineyard. We get to keep it all, all the produce, everything that comes from it. And so it says that this owner would repeatedly send messengers to go and, or not messengers, but, uh, people to go and collect the fruit and they keep killing him. So eventually he's like, I got, all right, I got one more. Surely my son, they wouldn't kill my son. Surely they wouldn't, but they're wrong or he, he's wrong in that assumption, in that when he sends his son, the tenants think, well, here's the heir. This is the one who's going to inherit this thing. So if we take him out, we inherit it. 
We get it. We get it all. And so selfishly, they take out the son. And he says, what is the, what is the, the owner, landowner going to do? Well, he's going to come. Uh, let us kill him. Or, and they took the vineyard. And it says, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? So then he quotes, and if you look in your footnotes, my footnotes kind of give it away for me. So uh, Psalm 118, there's a psalm where it would have been a familiar psalm, especially to those folks gathered. And uh, in Psalm 118, let's just quickly turn there. Psalm 118, I believe it's in 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And so he draws attention to this rejected cornerstone, and now he's drawing this connection that this son in the parable is is essentially connected to this rejected stone that is going to become the cornerstone that the Lord is going to make kind of the, the pinnacle stone of this structure, of this temple. Kind of there's this allusion to a, in, in Psalm 118, this building of a temple, of a place of worship, and that that although there are these rocks that are quarried and some are being rejected by the builders because they you know somehow maybe don't look quite as nice or maybe they have perceived uh, impurities or something like that, they, they don't like those stones. Sometimes they would have like marbling in them and it would just not be aesthetically pleasing. But what he's saying here is that the very stone that have been, has been rejected by the builders of this temple, that's the stone that the Lord chooses to not only use as a random piece, but as the piece, the main piece of this structure. And that he is referring to himself in this parable, I think is obvious, especially to us as we read it from our perspective. But how how is it perceived then? What are the people there wrestling with as they hear this? You have a gathered group of of experts in Judaism, priests, scribes, elders, the experts. And what are they experts of? They're experts of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Torah, the Law, the Prophets. They're experts in these things. And so this allusion to a vineyard would not be the first time that they've heard it. In fact, if you... Um, if you turn in your copy or scroll down in your copy of God's Word, you can see in Isaiah 5, there's this interesting prophetic vision that God gives to Isaiah the prophet about a vineyard. And it's the Lord is singing about the vineyard, which he also refers to as his beloved. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And so he's there's this almost a similar picture to this parable. So Jesus is obviously, you know, steeped in the scriptures. He's steeped in the law and the prophets as 100% man as well as 100% God. And so this imagery is interesting. And at the um, kind of at the end of this picture, 
of the vineyard in verse 7 of Isaiah 5. He says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so he right here references that in this, in, in terms of the vineyard that's utilized or spoken of in Isaiah, that refers to the house of Israel, the men of Judah, right? His people, his chosen people, God's people. And so it's very likely that as they're hearing Jesus share this parable, that imagery is in their mind because he's talking to these guys who are also saturated in the Hebrew scriptures and the law and the prophets. And so here they are, Here Jesus is speaking of an imagery that comes directly from Isaiah 5, a vineyard that the Lord plants, and that he spells out the vineyard is, those are his people. And so he's talking about this vineyard, the fruit, right? His people, there's this vineyard that's been planted and tenants have been put in place, the reason why the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests go, he's talking about us because he's referencing that they are the tenants and that throughout the generations, God has sent people to go and in, engage with the fruit, right? To, to gather fruit. You've got prophets throughout. You've got different messengers that have come from God that have been rejected by the tenants throughout. So you've got that. Israelites, the Hebrews, have rejected these ones set from the Lord, the landowner, and then finally his son. He sends his son, surely, surely they'll, they'll pay attention. But what he's saying in their midst is they are rejecting even the son that has been sent. Now what's interesting here is their reaction is not, woe is me, oh man, not deep conviction, not sadness, not even like the sense of guilt, like oh, he's talking about us. But instead, they decide to they want to arrest him. They're like, he's talking about us. He's saying these things about us. He's accusing us. How dare him? And so they're very frustrated because they're still trying to save face. They're still trying to hang on with a white-knuckled grip to whatever perceived identity or authority they have and they are angry at what he has now said about them. How dare he say that we're the tenants? They, they understood what he was saying. So it's no longer hidden. It's no longer uh, cryptic. It's now becoming more and more obvious, more and more open, which is, you know, in terms of the, the messianic secret that we talked about here, there's those times where he says he heals people. And he says, go tell no one. He, people identify who he is, and he's like, don't go tell anybody. And now, and as he's talking about parables, he's, things are, are kind of cryptic or not obvious, and so it doesn't get him in trouble as readily. And here we are as he gets closer and closer to the cross. He becomes more and more bold and obvious in his confrontation with the Jewish leadership, which will then speed up and make more likely, day after day, his coming execution. And so it's just uh, an incredible thing uh, to, to take note of. And I think that there's some, some things to understand here as to why they're frustrated uh, and what people are hearing. 
we know the response of of the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the ones that are angry. Uh, they want to arrest him, but feared the people, so they didn't arrest him. So again, they're still afraid of of the crowd. They're they're afraid of the you know popular opinion, and so they don't do anything right there. And that that will set them down the road of plotting and, and figuring out a way to take him out. But then you've got all those other people that are probably present. You got you have the people that are realizing this guy speaks truth. Whoa. And we don't know specifically their response at this time. We know that there will be those that believe in him after this, but in this particular episode, we don't know. But it's just one more seed that's, as people have eyes to see and ears to hear, they realize, wow, this guy, because he speaks and teaches as one who has authority. He just, he not only outwitted the elders, the scribes, and the priests, but he also kind of spoke an indictment against them. Here he is. He's so bold that not only is he tactically outwitting them in discussion and debate and evades their their traps, but he also then is bold enough to speak against them in a way that is unmistakably condemning. And so people are seeing this and they're realizing, okay, he's, he's the guy. He's got to be him. We've never seen anything like this. And so all of a sudden they begin to realize who he is. Surely there's those present that are recognizing this. And so what does this mean for them? There's, there's a clear indication that Jesus's kingdom is, is in his authority, is challenging all other perceived human authority. It's also challenging all spiritual perceived authority. So demons, uh, Satan, all principalities, all powers in the unseen realm, as well as all of those authorities that are perceived in the here and now. Caesar, the Jewish authority, uh, all of those things are being challenged by Jesus and his challenging is in a way that is bringing life to those who would believe, but death to those who would reject. And it's just so fascinating. And I think it's, I think one of the ways that I wrestle with this text is how do I then respond? How do we respond? What do we do in light of this reading? What, how do we wrestle with this? If this, if this is what it means, that this parable is, is spoken directly against the, the leadership of that day, and the way that they had mishandled, misled, and misrepresented God to the people, that they were evil tenants over the, over the, the, the vineyard, the, the place that is producing fruit and life and joy, because that's what, that's what wine and, and grapes represent, then if they're mishandling that and, and the indictment is against them, then we have to recognize that he is the son of that vineyard, that ultimately he is the heir and the owner of that vineyard, and that we are the fruit of that vineyard, ultimately, and that he has come to give us life and for us to, to be the fruit of of the life that we have in him, that we we bear fruit and continue to bear fruit. There's all kinds of analogies that come when you think about the fruitfulness aspect, the flourishing aspect, that 
goes all the way back to Genesis in the garden, be fruitful and multiply, uh, rule and subdue. And so there's this idea of being fruitful as well as cultivating the garden. They're placed in a garden, so there's, they're to cultivate fruitfulness in the plants and, and, and help creation to flourish. And so here again, there's this idea that these tenants were, were put in place to help people flourish, and they failed at it. They weren't causing flourishing. They were causing uh, death. And that's what he was indicting them of. What they were put in charge of was to help others flourish, and they didn't. And so a couple of things stand out to me. As a pastor, I'm, I'm going, okay, I, my leadership is I submit myself to Christ, and I'm led by him personally, that, that that effect in my life should cause flourishing in those around me, first in my wife and my kids, my immediate family, the people that I do life with, as well as the people in in my church family. I want to be a source of causing fruitfulness, of causing life and not death. And then also recognizing that it is ultimately Jesus is the one that can tend the garden. He can tend the vineyard in a way that will cause flourishing. And so it's only our life in him that will do that. If we try to rely on or, or lean on other things for that, that it won't produce life for us. So anyway, that's this is how I'm wrestling with this passage. Uh, yeah, I would love to hear your comments. If this is the first time you've tuned into the Take and Read podcast, what a treat, because it has never been like this before. <laughs> and I don't know how often it'll be like this after, but I've enjoyed taking the time to process this. I would love your thoughts, since I'm just here stuck with my own thoughts. If you have comments or questions, uh, you can leave comments. Uh, you know, in how whatever format you're getting this podcast, whether it's audio or video, uh, please leave comments. Uh, love uh, to get those, and love for you guys to dialogue with each other over this text. If you have questions specifically for me, you can email me at takeandreadpodcast at gmail Love to get those emails. Love to know how you're wrestling with this text. Uh, leave comments of whether or not you like this format. Uh, I don't know how regularly I would do it, but uh, still toying with the idea of, of some sort of format where I just take a short bit of time and process through a passage of Scripture, and maybe it'll look like this. But I think the big picture and the big takeaway here is that Jesus came so that we may have life and we may have life in Him. And what he is condemning the leaders of this day as he is on earth, as he was on earth ministering at that time, he was challenging that the leaders of that day were not causing life. They had misrepresented everything that they were, they were established to do. And so we as believers, as followers of Christ, let us be sobered by a text like this, that, that we have to be mindful of how we represent him but also let us just rest in the fact that it is only by grace. It is only by the grace of, of God in Christ Jesus, for we are saved by grace through faith. And that is not of our own doing, but it is a gift from the Lord. And so it is by his grace that we know him, that we can live in him, and we can represent him. So every day, falling on our face, thanking him for life and the opportunity to represent him. And that also, he is a good king. He is a good landowner. He's a good vineyard tender. And so allowing him to do the work of sanctification in our lives by his spirit, convicting us of sin and giving us opportunities to repent of that and to walk in newness of life. That's 
That's the kind of king that he is. His is a kingdom of life and not death. And so I hope and pray that as you listen to this podcast today and wrestle with this text, you'd be reminded of the life that you have in Christ Jesus because it's in him that we live and move and have our being. And I'm so grateful to be called his. So I encourage everyone out there, if you have not if not uh, had an opportunity to trust in Christ, today could be the day. would encourage you uh, to find somebody to talk to, but all you have to do is, is just come to the realization and honestly and authentically say, I, I'm a broken person. I'm broken in every way, and I have no ability to, to fix myself or to save myself, and I need you, Lord. So please come into my life right now. I give everything that I have to you, and I want to follow you. I trust you. May your spirit come into me and give me life and help me to walk with you. And then go get you a copy of God's word and start reading it. If you're not a believer and you're like, I'm still, no, I'm not, I don't want to do that. I'm encouraged that you would even tune into this podcast because I think it's good that you know what we believe as we as Christians take and read it and realizing its profound influence on the world today. So go take and read the word of God. Blessings. Blessings.